My name's uh, Matt Kerber, uh, pastor at City Reformed. I don't preach as often in the evening, and uh, some, the, the services are very similar. The rhythms are just a little different. And I, I walked up here uh, to this uh, podium, and I thought, am I missing something? Am I missing anything? If I am, tell me. Okay. In that case, we're rolling forward. Um, we're moving through uh, the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. We call it Corinthians 2 because it's the second letter in the Bible. Uh, it seems clear that he wrote at least one other letter to them. Uh, but uh, this is the, only, the second of the two that we have on record. Uh, and if you look with me at the text, I'm going to give a quick word of explanation. You'll notice there's a, a section on page 7 that's in italics. I'm not going to read that today um, because we're going to come back to that next week. Um, this passage, this entire chapter, uh, talks about emotions and particularly the emotional life of Paul and even more particularly uh, the emotional life related to ministry. Uh, the section in italics is a very famous section that talks about godly grief that leads to repentance. Um, if you don't know many things uh, from 2 Corinthians, you know, someone might be just a little bit familiar. This might be one of the things they know or have heard before from the letter. So next week, Dave Snoke's going to preach on it. We didn't, it's so important, we wanted to make sure there was time for it. But you'll notice that the, it's in some ways kind of an aside in this longer discussion in which the Apostle Paul is talking with the Corinthians about his relationship with him, with them. It's a very real relationship and one that's characterized by some pretty strong feelings. The Apostle Paul uh, understood that to be normal for healthy relationships. And, and midway through he takes kind of an aside and he talks about a difficult thing they had to work through where he corrected them and they were grieved into repenting. That was good. That's what we'll come back to next week. But this week we'll look at the larger picture of the reality of relationships in which we are emotionally engaged. That's what we're talking about. I titled the sermon, Ministry from the Heart. And uh, since the, the nature of the text is, is very relational and the words are, are full of rich emotional words, um, I want to try to read with a little more inflection uh, as we move through uh, this part of 2 Corinthians 7. The words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church. Make room in your heart for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted on every turn, fighting without, fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us, by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing 
your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Continuing in verse 13. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has been proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to talk about three things today as we look at this, uh, at this section of the letter, the section of uh, 2 Corinthians 7. Uh, first of all, we're going to talk maybe most generally at first about the reality of emotions in healthy spirituality. Um, secondly, we'll look more specifically at the way emotions are related to ministry. And Paul ties this language of emotion very closely uh, to his experience of ministry with the Corinthians and with Titus, with these people that he's writing about. And third and finally, we'll talk about how we can cultivate this sort of uh, emotional life, a healthy emotional life in our relationships as well. So first off, Paul and emotions. Uh, the letter is full of emotional language. Did you hear it? I think sometimes with all scripture, it's easy for us to read, even in our own reading, in sort of a monotone voice. I remember uh, uh, once uh, someone who was talking about the, the practice of, of preaching said that after one sermon, a, a member of the congregation came up to him and said, you know, uh, I'd really like it if you could just be a little more uh, succinct in your sermons. Uh, you're telling too many, you know, too many illustrations. I just... We just want the information so we can go home. I suspect that sort of approach can often shape our interactions uh, around reading the Bible. We might find ourselves drifting in a way of thinking, this is, I just want the information. Uh, we, we might drift into thinking, if, if I could distill the true facts from this passage and take the facts in, then I will have achieved the goal of reading this part of the Bible. There are certainly fields of study that may, uh, may work this way, right? If, uh, if you're a civil engineer and you're, and you're doing a study on, on how to build a bridge, there's certain information you need to learn, and if you can grab that information and, and move it into your bridge project, then it will be a success. But for the Apostle Paul, ministry and the Christian life isn't like building a bridge. It's not mechanical, it's a place for mechanical things. But his perspective on ministry, his perspective on the Christian life is relational and it's whole person related. Just, just look, for example, at, at what the Apostle Paul says. First of all, about joy. Verse 4, he said, I am overflowing with joy. Verse 7, second part of verse 7, he says, I rejoiced still more. Right? The meaning... He rejoiced, then he rejoiced again. 
He's continuing to rejoice. He's rejoicing on top of rejoicing. And as if that's not enough, in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 13, he, he goes back and says, we rejoice still more. As if he's brought other people into this continual practice of ongoing rejoicing. And he sums it all up in verse 16 by saying, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. He rejoices again. Four times in this short section, Paul talks about rejoicing. It's a a significant theme for him. Maybe some of you can cite from memories other places. Paul would talk about this to the Romans. He commands the, the church, rejoice with those that rejoice, weep with those that weep. He understands that there's a practice of healthy spirituality that is something we are called to live into and, and, and activate in our lives as we are able. Rejoice. To the Philippians, he said again, this is an imperative, a command, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. It's a pretty big theme, pretty strong thing in this passage. And just want to pause for a second and, and ask if this accurately shapes your experience of the Christian life or even of your perception of the Apostle Paul. Paul, the the great founding influential apostle in the church to whom so many of the, the New Testament books are traced, his impact going out in missionary journeys and, and braving all sorts of difficult things with great courage. And he, even here he talks about facing suffering. He's, he's really you know, strong-willed. He's a towering intellect. The, the Pauline epistles in the New Testament are often uh, are characterized as being some of the most rigorous theological uh, uh, documents that we would have really carefully reasoned thought uh, that we might say one of the preeminent theologians if you had in your mind a picture of a theologian or a picture of Paul the theologian would include a picture that looked like what Paul's talking about here would you see a picture of someone in their studies, maybe got a, uh, you know, a big frown on their face, they're hunched over and they've been reading so much and dealing with so many big ideas, you certainly might not expect that kind of a person to be rejoicing. What would happen if you went to Paul's study where he was writing one of these letters and you bumped into him? Maybe in that moment he would be in deep thought, but if you encountered the Apostle Paul, what would he be like? Through his self-description, he describes himself as someone who is rejoicing. When you bump into the Apostle Paul, would you walk away with the impression of someone who is overflowing with joy? That's how he understands his own experience. Now, it's not just that. He's very real about other difficulties as well. When Paul talks about the call to rejoice, he's not suggesting that we paper over real things that are hard. Remember, he said, not only do we rejoice with those we rejoice, we weep with those that weep. There's, a, there's an honesty in the Christian emotional life as well, and he's brutally honest here. Look at the other side of the, of the Apostle Paul as, as we look a little more closely at the passage. He, he says in verse 4, at the end of verse 4, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Joy in the midst of a very difficult situation and he doesn't for a second cover over the difficulty. 
In fact, he goes on, he unpacks that a little more. He takes that idea and he says, well, let me tell you, verse five, we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. Okay, that's hard. How does Paul deal with it? You just plow through it? He certainly does endure, he continues, but look at him talking about the situation. We were afflicted at every turn. Maybe sometimes we picture the, the heroes of the faith as people who float above their circumstances, not really engaged, not really affected by them, just kind of float above them. He's so spiritual, it doesn't touch them. Well, that's not what he says. They were afflicted. He said there was fighting without and fear within. It's a pretty remarkable admission, isn't it? Essentially, Paul says, I was afraid. That's what he says. He was honest about that reality in his life. There is a proper place for fear in the Christian life, fear of God, fear of, of engaging in a good way, a healthy respect and reverence. And, and you might, might remember at the end that that was one of the things that Titus really noticed when he went. The Corinthians responded to his ministry with this healthy fear. That was a positive thing. But in this context, it seems to have a different tone, doesn't it? He's not talking, he doesn't seem to be talking specifically about his affliction and his fear of the Lord, but a circumstance that caused him to be afraid. Such circumstances that required comfort. The first challenge as we look at the passage is just recognizing that, that maybe what needs to happen sometimes is we have a bit of a, a course correction where the real Apostle Paul is allowed to correct some of the stained glass two-dimensional images that can be created of him. It's a real three-dimensional character and it allows us to have accurate expectations of the Christian life. Not such that we float above all problems and we just move forward with a stiff upper lip and, and cultivate all proper thinking, but one in which we are actively emotionally engaged, that we are part of what's going on. I think that's a, that can be a challenge. That can be a challenge for us. Uh, again, I think there's a bunch of reasons why uh, uh, we might find ourselves drifting into a way of thinking that Christian theology somehow moves us above or beyond healthy emotions. This, this passage can start to correct it. I want to move a step more. The second thing we want to look at today is the way in which Paul ties this emotional life to ministry, because that's really what this is about. It's about the way in which Paul's, he's really talking about his emotional responses are part of a real relationship he has with people that he really cares about. The title of the sermon was Ministry from the Heart. Because that's really what's happening throughout the whole letter here. He starts off by saying, make room in your hearts for us. Isn't that an interesting sentence? Again, we may have pictures in our head if we know anything about the Apostle Paul. We might imagine what he would really want to tell people. But this is, his, this is kind of the central theme of this chapter. I want you to make room in your heart for me. Would you have pictured that as being something Paul would say? Is that like real heavy theological, in-depth stuff there, right? I want you to care about me. I want you to really value our relationship. Look at what he's, look at what he's rejoicing about. 
as, as we look through the passage here. He says, uh, verse four, he said, in our affliction we're overflowing with joy for, all right, going, he talks about all the affliction and the difficulties, what needed to happen when Paul is in Macedonia and he was in affliction and he was facing fighting without and fear within, he said, God brought comfort. How did God bring comfort? Well, certainly God has all power. Many times in our direct relationship with him as we come before the Lord in prayer and worship, as we read the scriptures, that God shows us his glory and his power and he ministers to us and the power of the spirit to bring comfort. That's what God does. But here, Paul's pointing out that, that in this particular situation, God worked through an agent to bring comfort. He comforted Paul with the coming of Titus. Again, just think about how remarkable this is. I mean, hands down, one of the top most influential leaders in Christianity. And he says, I was afflicted. I was facing difficulty outside and fear within. And me and my group of people were comforted by Titus. Isn't that pretty interesting? Again, Paul's, not only is Paul not floating above his situation, he's not assuming that he's so self-sufficient that he can get through it on his own. He's not even assuming he's just going to get through it, me and Jesus together, we don't need anybody else, right? And we, of course, we know that in our moments of isolation, God can meet us and care for us and help us. He's able to meet us there. But what Paul is describing here is really normative Christianity in which the general practice is that God works through people in our lives. He comforted us through Titus. Now, this is where the passage gets interesting, and you have to sort of read carefully to follow the logic here. He says, when Titus came, it was a comfort to us. This is not uncommon for Paul to say this kind of thing. He'd write, write to Timothy. Timothy saying, would you come soon? I, I need your encouragement. I need your help. The same Paul who would often close his letters. He not only would write magnificent prayers in his letters, but you notice how often at the end of his letter he'll say, would you please pray for me? Paul knew that he needed people, that God was going to work through the prayers of other people in his life. Certainly Paul is in many senses different than we are, he, he, the Lord Jesus called him directly, appointed him as an apostle. He had a, a specific role in the church and the author of sacred scripture, God worked through him and at the same time, Paul was still human and he would say, I need your prayers. In this, he's following, of course, the pattern of our Lord, Second person of the Trinity, truly God, yet truly human in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says to his disciples, would you pray for me? So surely, friends, none of us are more sufficient, more self-sufficient than Paul. Isn't that true? None of us are more self-sufficient than the Lord Jesus. We need the prayers of other people. We need the comfort that God gives through other people. So, Paul was comforted by Titus. Here, here's where it gets kind of next level uh, thinking. You've got to follow this a little bit carefully. It's not immediately obvious what he's saying. He says, not only were we comforted by Titus being with us, but it was a huge comfort to me that when Titus arrived, he came with a smile on his face. His spirits were uplifted because you administered to him. All right, he says, 
I was comforted because, there's a couple of reasons here, as we look down a little bit further, verse 13, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. What Paul's saying is, you know, here we're in Macedonia, the, the, the difficult situation has hit the fan and uh, things are hard and there's fighting is around us and my boy, there's, we're feeling weighty in this situation and Titus showed up. And, and presumably, and I didn't see this note here, they may have helped to send Titus even financially, I don't know. But Titus shows up and when he arrives, not only is Titus an encouragement, but Titus comes telling stories of saying, I just got back from Corinth. And my spirits were so lifted by spending time with those Corinthians. Now, if you've been with us off and on for the last year following the letter of 1 Corinthians and the 2 Corinthians, you understand why, in particular, this would have been a joy for Paul. Because more often than not, the Corinthians were a mess, right? And if you read the little section in italics in the middle, uh, Dave Snokes, our preacher next week, he'll come back to that. All right, the reference is to Paul needing to correct them so strongly that they, were, that they experienced a godly sorrow towards repentance. Right? So, you know, they're, again, they're not, a, they're not a stained glass two-dimensional church where everything's great. It's a real church with real problems, and Paul's engaged in real ministry. And here shows, Titus shows up, and Paul sees in the flesh the result of their ministry to Titus. Isn't that amazing? Titus went to teach them. He was working for the Apostle Paul. He came as, with authority. He has a role, right? And yet he himself has been refreshed and encouraged by his time with the Corinthians. And Paul says, I rejoice still more. Isn't that interesting? I re- it's like he says this, this thing going on here, right? Where God works through people to encourage each other. When I saw it happening with you and Titus, I knew that you got it. I could see the, 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 the blessing beginning to cascade outward. You also were becoming an instrument God could use to encourage Titus. And when he came to me, I could see the chain being completed and I rejoiced still more. Didn't that get you excited? I, I, I am thankful for the comfort and encouragement of many people in our congregation, for your prayers, for your friendship. Um, I try as much as my, I can, shaped by some of what I understand of this biblical teaching, to, to be as honest as I can. I'm a pastor in our church. Um, I've been here for almost 18 years. Uh, I am still as needy as ever. I'm thankful for our friends, for prayers, uh, for people that, that speak hope and encouragement to me. But the thing that gets me most excited is when someone else is encouraging another person and I don't have anything to do with it. That's when I get really, really excited. That's, isn't that so wonderful? Do you hear those stories? When, when maybe it's, maybe it's a you know, surprising person, surprising situation, someone maybe they've been struggling not that long ago themselves. Someone you know, you know of the difficulties and the burdens in their life and then you hear a report of that person was an encouragement to me. Isn't that exciting? This is, do you see the beauty of this picture? That God who, who himself is, he doesn't need anything. He is within himself completely uh, uh, 
undependent on anything else, but he is overflowing with love, and in his overflowing of love to us, he then calls and shapes us to be vessels of blessing to other people. That's what God's inviting you into. He's saying, I actually want to use you to be an encouragement to someone else. And I want to use other people to be an encouragement to you. This is a picture of of how God is operating in the world. I think it's exciting. I think it's wonderful stuff. But you may be asking the question, how do we do this? What do we do with that? Maybe the the feelings you might get at this moment are a brief momentary flare of joy and encouragement or, or, or hopeful thinking and then you start thinking, you know what, I haven't done that very well. Which is pretty much how I was thinking yesterday. <laughs> you know, the more I thought about this, the more I'm like, boy, I'm not sure I'm really that much of an encourager most of the time. Uh, I could be a lot better at this. And you start to feel this sort of burden of like, well, how am I going to find the time and can I really do it? How do, we, how do we cultivate an attitude where we can be actively engaged in this sort of ministry from the heart, where God would be using us in the lives of other people, where we would be joyfully receiving all of the things that God's doing around us? Doesn't that sound good? How do we get into that? How do we move into it? I think there's, there's three things that we see in the passage. We'll just, as we shift, this is our third point, subdivided three ways, A, B, and C. How do we do it? How do we cultivate this ministry from the heart? And we'll just notice that Paul, this is the Bible the whole way through, doesn't picture emotions as something you control, but nor do they teach that it's something completely beyond you, that it's if your emotions are flying around and they're just controlling you. There's a lot of command language related to emotional things, like the command rejoice. There's an active role we take. Even as we recognize that, you know, making yourself feel a certain way isn't something you do by flipping a switch on. It's not how the human heart works. We're far more complex than that. But just look at the opening command language. Paul says, make room in your heart for us. Again, you notice that's, a, that's an imperative, it's a command. He's telling the Corinthians, I want you to do something in regard to our relationship. Make room in your heart for me. What does that mean? I think, I think the context shows us that in a sense the, the simplest meaning is accurate. To have someone in your heart is to regard the value and significance of that person and that relationship. When, when, if they were, if the Corinthians had Paul in their heart, what would it mean? If they made room for him, I, I think, I think that um, the most obvious thing is that they would, they would recognize that what happened to Paul was important to them. They would recognize the significance of Paul, of that relationship, and create space for it. They, they would see a value. They would see a common shared, uh, maybe a, a common outcome. But this is what I mean. Look at the next verse. He says, we have made room for you. I, you are in our hearts, he says in verse three. And then look at the next little section there. To die together and to live together. 
You ever heard that, that phrase, you know, someone's your, your, what, uh, your ride and die friend, am I saying it right? All right? You say, this is the friend I'm going with to the end. We live together, we die together. Right, we, now we know that from history that when soldiers are in war together, experiencing these you know, risky situations on a regular basis, deep bonds are formed there. Who is it that you are riding and dying with, living and dying with? That's what's kind of at the heart of this thing. This is actually covenantal language. We'd say covenant, we're describing this relationship people have where they are bound together. What happens to you happens to me. We're in this together. I'm experiencing this just a little bit. I'm playing in a soccer team with other old guys. Um, and uh, in the soccer terms, we've been doing a lot of dying together. Um, I don't know if we're just all in the upper end of our age bracket, but we, we've had some tough losses. <laughs> and uh, um, yesterday, at a, a sort of dark moment of the soccer game, uh, which sometimes get too rough for old people to be playing with each other. Like, I don't know what's going on, but I, I found myself thinking at one point, I'm not sure it's really worth it, <laughs> right? Uh, I keep playing really hard. I might get hurt. And I'm not sure everyone else on my team's trying that hard. Uh, I'm going to reevaluate the cost-benefit analysis of the situation right now. Because <laughs> whatever happens in the next 10 minutes, it might not be worth getting hurt for. And then my teammates scored a surprising goal. He brought us back. Everyone was shocked. We're like, we'll die together. We're... My, my heart is all over the place with this stuff. But practically speaking, isn't it true when you are committed with in, in a relationship with someone, shared ministry, that you begin to have this sense of common concern? When we, when we recognize that we belong to the same father and we are part of the same family, that what happens to you affects me, that's what it means to be in church together. To live and to die together, Paul says. Isn't that a pretty powerful thought? You know, when we're in church, we find ourselves with people that maybe we don't naturally uh, have that much in common with. But as we cultivate our shared identity in Jesus and we're reminded that we have, have both through Christ found forgiveness of sins and renewal, we've experienced the mercy of a heavenly Father. He's calling us into this similar family together, a family in which the Lord Jesus not only lived for us but died for us. In our connection to him, we begin to reorient ourselves to other people. Jesus was the model of this. He moves ahead of us as the one who is committed to us to the point of death. Friends, it is such good news that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't look, look over the life of, of Matt Kerber and say, you know, I think I want to reevaluate the cost-benefit analysis of this situation. I'm not sure he's worth it. I'm not sure it's really worth me going to the cross for people who right now are so hardened in their sin. They are enemies of God. Romans 5. The good news is when we were enemies of God, when we were dead in our sins, Jesus went to the cross and died for us. He lived for us. He died for us. And he was raised from the dead that we would have life. And that shapes and changes us, doesn't it? 
two more ideas, I'll, I'll do the second one quickly. Paul says to make room in our hearts and the question is a simple one. Is it possible that maybe the reason we don't de- deepen our relationships with people is there's too much other stuff stuck in there? Too many other things we value so highly, too many, uh, so much busyness. There's no room for people and relationships. Apostle Paul seems to think that the Corinthians need to be active in making room. I just hold that before you today as a question. Do your, does your time, does your uh, uh, calendar, I was going to say, I was thinking of a, a paper one, but I realized for all of them, <laughs> probably right here, right? Does that reflect the values and the relationships that have the most eternal significance? Let me close, though, with a final idea, third and finally, as we think about how we cultivate this. A friend was uh, sharing the story the other night. He had heard a, a lecture related to teaching from a particular uh, Christian psychologist who was, who was talking about the realities of how humans form early attachments. He was talking about the way in which we begin to see the faces even as young people and we begin to form deep connections with those faces. And from this he drew a principle that really, really intrigued me. He made an argument. He said that the, the human reality is that we are all born looking for a face that's looking for us. Here's how I understand that. He says we have this deep desire not only to see a face of a person, but to see the face that is eager to see us. Isn't that an interesting thought? The reason it came to mind is I think it's sort of a description of what Paul's talking about here in verse 7. What was it the Corinthians did that comforted him? First of all, they comforted Titus, but secondly, they did something else. He says this, Titus told us of your longing your mourning, and your zeal for me. So I rejoice still more. Through Titus, the Corinthians demonstrated to Paul, we care about you. We're longing to see you. We are, we are sharing with you in some of the difficulties. We know you're afflicted in Macedonia, fighting without fear within. We are experiencing some of that with you, and we have longing to see you. We have zeal for you. It's as if Paul himself saw in this moment through the Corinthians that picture of the, of the expectant face looking for him. You know what that's like? I, I still feel that. I go to, you know, it's like to go to a party and you don't know anyone and all of a sudden the person that you know turns and they see you and they say, I'm so glad you're here. You know what that feels like, don't you? To be, to be maybe walking into church and maybe you're on the newer side, you don't know many people, and suddenly someone turns, they recognize you, they see you, and in their look they communicate, I wanted you to be here. Isn't that actually, if you can trace out those feelings, I know for me it touches something so deep in my heart. The Apostle Paul is describing that experience here. And he's saying we can mediate that to each other. 
that he, God is giving you power when you know and love people to be an agent that communicates that kind of love. Because when we're doing it, what we're actually showing is the, the heart of God for his people. He was seeking us and we weren't looking for him. When Jesus was talking to the, the woman at the well, he said to her, she was getting into a theological dispute about which mountain or which practice, and Jesus said, truth is important, but let me tell you this, what the Father is seeking is worshipers. Father is seeking people like you. He's actively sent his son in his life and death and resurrection to be the means for your forgiveness, to bring you into his family. We were told that when Jesus was facing the cross, it wasn't merely a matter of uh, informational analysis that he was doing, but the author of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. The joy set before Jesus was the salvation of his covenant people, people like you and me. He saw us not as we deserve, but through the eyes of grace and compassion, he saw us, and for that joy, he endured the cross. If we knew that, in our bones, wouldn't that lead to great rejoicing? And knowing that, we sought to be the agent of communicating that to others. Isn't that the life we want to live? A life of joy being used by God for his purposes, ministry from the heart, as we call others into this life of knowing God, being known by him, and sharing that with the world around us. Let's pray together.